what's better than earning money from a nine to five job? It's earning money while you sleep, which is made possible if you start investing. You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Demystified with your very own dynamic duo, Ava Benasaki and August Biniaz. Tune in as we discuss everything real estate, both on the passive and active sides. We feature life-changing stories of today's real estate leaders that will help build your own roadmap to success. This is a show that will lead you to diversified portfolio, a much bigger revenue, and a next level venture that brings you a smooth cash flow. Let's get this episode started. All right, welcome back. It's 2023. It is 2023. Happy New Year to our viewers and listeners. Thank you for all the loyal viewers and listeners. They've yeah, been you... with us now for a long time. We've yeah. gone through a lot. I've actually gained and lost probably around 40 pounds and my hairstyle has changed and I grew a beard. So <laughs> right. they've seen me go through a lot and a lot of gray hairs coming out and the economy and interest rates. Like that. as much as interest rates have gone up and down, my weight has gone up and down. Yeah. So at Ava, it's, it stayed exactly perfect the same, like a GP should, right? A general partner should always be consistent. So That's right. That's right. Yeah. We just want to thank all of our viewers without you guys. This wouldn't be as fun and exciting. We always love seeing new subscribers and likes. And we put a lot of work into this every week. So it really means a lot to us, guys. Over the holidays, what did we do, August? We got really sick. Yeah, so over the holidays. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? If you're living in a cold country and for the holidays, you're going to go to a colder place. That's really bad. That's, it's a bad uh, idea. And that's what we were going to do. Yes. We were going to go see Ava's parents. And we did it's kind in of an annual ritual. We go and see them every Christmas holiday. And the flights got canceled because there was a bit of snow here. The weather and, was horrific. And right as soon as we tried to reschedule a flight a few days later, we got sick. And, um, and we I'm slept for days. But I will say we did one thing. We got ramped up for 2023. We've got all of our internal stuff organized. We put new systems and processes in place because we're getting ready for incredible buying opportunities. Yes, yes. Year. I'm sure our, our viewers and listeners have enough listening about us. So let's talk let's about, talk our, about guest our, our amazing today. We're guest today. Excited. Angel Williams. She is a good friend of mine and an associate. She's very interesting. So I'm eager to interview her. So maybe we yeah, can tell absolutely. our peoples a little bit about. Angel. Angel Williams. Yeah. All right. Here we go, guys. Today, we're joined by Angel Williams. Now, Angel began her personal real estate investing journey in 2003. She is a co-founder of the Academy Presents and a managing partner of Lauren Capital LLC. Now, Angel has experience in single family home rentals, residential multifamily rentals, multifamily syndication, and oil and gas investing. Now, Angel graduated from Baylor University in 2000, and this is really impressive, with a BA in economics. And in 2002, with an MS in economics, or my kind of girl. So not giving up on educating altogether, she still teaches economics on the college level as a professor. So with the goal of becoming one of the top sources of for real estate investing information and connections across the many facets of real estate investing, Angel hopes to break down the perceived barriers in investment types and tools. So we believe this interview with Angel will bring great value to both passive and active investors looking to learn about the 2023 economy forecast as it spartans to multifamily and real estate. So welcome, Angel. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Wow. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, this will be lots of fun. Let's dive into things, Angel. Please tell us about your background and then your start in real estate, please. All right. Absolutely. My husband and I, Jason, we both grew up in families invested in real estate. So when we bought our first house in 2003, he was, well, I'm older than him. I think I was 26. He was like 23 or 24. I don't actually know. When he was finishing up his doctorate, that became our first rental. And the cool thing with that was that we never really discussed whether or not we were going to sell it. 
We just started finding people to do the make readies. We started looking for property management companies because we knew we weren't going to be staying in Lubbock. At that point, we knew we were moving to Wichita Falls. And so we're trying to get that house ready to make it a rental, but we never discussed whether or not it would be a rental. It just became our first rental. So I always think that's kind of a neat story. And I've talked to him multiple times about it. I'm like, do you remember talking about it? And he's like, I actually don't. So it was just a supernatural progression for that to become our first rental. And then when we got to Wichita Falls, we got a couple more singles. And then we got a couple more singles a couple of years ago that kind of fell in our lap. And the reason I said they fell in our lap was like $110,000 portfolio. So it was two houses, 55-ish a piece. And we walked away from title with like seventeen dollars or $18,000. We do not go out looking for residential anymore. But if those kind of deals come back across our plate, we're probably going to go after them because I really like the store of value that a residential property provides for that single owner. Because you can do a lot of stuff with those kinds of properties. I know a lot of people that get into multifamily are like, oh, get rid of your residential stuff. And I don't think we ever will because nothing can beat those infinite returns. So that was how we got started into that. And then, I don't know, here we are today. And then here (laughs) we are today. Now, when did you discover syndication? It was about 2017, maybe 2018. And Jason had signed us up for an event in Grapevine and Joe Fairless was one of the speakers. And what had happened was, is we had, we've got four children, but we had our special needs son in 2010. We got his diagnosis in 2011 in that summer. And he had a super rare genetic condition. And so he's, he's pretty medically needy. One of his therapies is over $100,000 a year on its own. And so we knew that doing the single family slow roll wasn't going to give us the scale that we needed to be able to cover his medical bills. And our ultimate goal is to make sure that his sisters do not have to worry about his medical needs or his medical costs. They just have to love him because our hope is that we will have already created that trust for him that will cover his medical needs when we're gone. And that was really what pushed us into multifamily. And did you get involved in syndications as a passive investor initially, or did you get right into it trying to be active? Oh, no. I think we took the same path a lot of people take. You start out LP and then you eventually run out of money. (laughs) You have to go active side if you want to stay in it. We are LPs in, I don't know, seven or eight deals maybe. And then we went active side in 2021. Got it. Talk to us about that transition to being active. Obviously, you were investing in real estate for a long time, but then you realized about syndication that existed. You invested as an LP, then you saw their potential returns. But then now that transition to want to be involved in active side, going from an LP to a G. Talk to us about that process. How did that come about? Did you join any mentorship programs, any coaching programs? Did you, yeah, talk to us about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. So we did, in fact, wind up joining a coaching program. It may have been the guy we met in 2017. And we joined in with his program probably 2018. That was the year that we started doing some LP investing. And really, it was, I left teaching in 2020. And then Jason's company that he was working for knew that they were going to be transitioning to Houston and he was not going with them. And so he had about a year to prepare and he's like, okay, we're going to go active side. I was like, all righty then. So we got an SMS blast. So a text blast from a broker and it was two properties here in Wichita Falls. And I was like, well, heck yeah, I'm going to call. I had never really spoken to a broker before. So I called and he didn't even know his phone was picked up. And I'm like, hello. And so finally, this guy's like, oh my gosh, nobody other line. I'm like, well, you have picked up. And most of the time you'll talk to people and they're like, man, you got to treat brokers like there's something special. Take them out to eat, do this, do that. Sure, there's something special. They're people. They're special people, <laughs> just like everybody else. But it was just a funny exchange because I was like, well, I go ahead and pencil us in. I'll let you know if it doesn't work, but that should be good for my husband's lunch hour. And it was just a super weird conversation because how many people are like, oh, just pencil us in. When you're talking to a broker, they're like, they've got their things set up. They know who's coming. They've got their due diligence checklists or like to do on the basic first level when you first 
see a property. And yeah, I didn't understand that you're supposed to do any of that. I just knew that Jason was going to be not having a job and we needed to go active side. And so that was what I did because it was all I knew how to do. Got it. Let's break it down a bit more. So you make that decision to be involved on the active side. You've already invested as an LP in the past. So you know that communications that GPs have and you've read PPMs and you see how deals are put together. But now you want to get involved on the active side. You're part of a coaching program, mentorship program. At what point do you start connecting with brokers? Because for you to have been on that broker's list, you must have taken some steps there. So there must have been a strategy there. I think I just signed up for it. Okay. Maybe in your mentorship program, they told you. Uh, no, it wasn't in the mentorship program. It was a Marcus and Militap deal and I was just on one of their Okay. Um, For like secondary or tertiary markets, I think, in which falls is a secondary slash tertiary market. And that was how I got on it. And then with the second deal we got, Jason had been building a relationship with that broker. That's not how we got the deal. The deal was marketed and a bunch of our friends sent it to us because they know this is where we live. And then Jason started building that relationship with him. And so that was, I think, how that one worked out. But it was not, we do it different than a lot of people. We do not actively go out and seek relationships with brokers. If they happen, I feel like the universe makes things happen and the universe puts things out there for us. And you just have to recognize them when they're there and make it work for you. Right on. And your first deal, how big was your first deal? 72. 72 units. Great. And if you had to give like a blueprint to someone else who's listening or watching this show, who's invested in real estate in the past, maybe has invested as a LP, but wants to get involved on the active side, should they go your guys's route where leave their job and then get involved on a general partnership side? Is there other roadmaps that they should follow, possibly a co-GP option first, and then get involved as a lead sponsor. What would be your advice having gone through the steps you went through? I think it depends on who's in your network. And it really depends on how people see you. If when people think of you, they think of, oh, teacher, engineer, firefighter, or something else, a different role, you're probably not going to be as successful in a co-GP position because people don't see you as a real estate investor first. People need to see that as your primary role for you to be effective in that co-GP position. Otherwise, I would say try and get on a team doing something else, whether that's asset management or doing some of the other pieces, putting together the business plan or helping search out the loan, finding a loan program or a a loan product that you're going to be able to use. Find another way to be a part of a team underwriting somehow. What is the best way to find a way to be on a team? How would somebody go about doing that? Do not go up to somebody and say, oh man, how can I help you? How can I be a part of your team? How can I help your team? No, because now you've given me another job. Now I got to figure out what to do with you too. If you're going to go to somebody say, hey, I'm really great at asset management. I am really great and I have great relationships with loan brokers and MESDEP people. I'm really great at underwriting. I'm really great at this piece. I know property management and Go in there and tell them what you're good at because that's going to weed you out from a whole bunch of other people that are How do you find them though? How do you find them? You just have to go to events, go to meetups. We're two hours away from any big metro areas. So most of what I do is online. I do a lot of virtual events and people tell you, oh, you're not going to be able to raise capital that way. You're not going to meet people that way, but it's been super effective for us. Whatever method you choose, you got to go all in with it. You can't just not go in all the way. I can't think of a good way to say that. It's going to be dirty if I say it. All good. Let's go over your process. Seems like you went through the blood, sweat and tears process doing your first deal as it came and both of you have left your spouse left your job talk to us about some difficulties you faced there did you syndicate the deal did you raise capital from your network how was that going to people knowing you as a teacher or knowing you as a professor and knowing your husband as a busy professional going saying hey we're buying multifamily and come and invest with us talk to us maybe experiences you had there 
So the cool thing about that was everybody knew we had that residential side hustle. We've got four houses here in town and people that know us know that we have rentals here. They know we have rentals in other towns. They know we've got the oil and gas. We've got a quad and a couple of duplexes with Jason's family properties in Waco. They know we have stuff going on. I left teaching in February of 2020. We got our first deal under contract in August of 21. So for 18 months, people only saw me as a real estate investor. They knew I taught on the side. They knew I had this, I had that. But they saw me as the face of our educational platform and a real estate investor. And so that was kind of the plus of being in the space for three to four years before we ever went active side. The other thing was that a lot of the stress was gone off of me because we had replaced my income with our residential real estate way before I ever left teaching. I was teaching because I love teaching. But when that environment became too toxic, I had the ability to leave. Now, Replacing Jason's income was a little bit tougher. And so what actually happened was the company moved to Houston. He didn't go with them. And that was what propelled us into having to go active side because we needed to be able to take down a bigger piece of the deal. Right. So she literally prepped her investors before she took down her. So you probably went to your investor said, hey, guys, we're looking. When we have a deal, are you on board? And that made you confident to go into a deal. Yeah, I mean, there was some of that. We had probably 60 or 70% of our investors didn't actually care about the deal. They wanted to see us be successful. And that goes back to, I'm not always focused on having investor relations or investor relationships, but I am really always focused on having investor friendships because I want to have friendships with the people that are coming into our deals. I want to know them. I want to know what they're looking for, what their families are looking for. Are they experiences, not things? What's propelling them? Yeah. Because if I can know them at that level, I know how to present a deal. I know how to talk to them and I know how to talk to them outside of a deal because you don't want to be vomiting real estate on them every time you see them. That's right. The investor psychology, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Now interviewed a lot of people and we know a lot of people in this space who've came from other spaces into real estate with no finance or mixed background. Yourself, you do have an economics background. So you understand the finance world. I've been on group meetings, as you've mentioned, online group meetings. And when I've heard you speak, you sounded very sophisticated. So you got my attention and that was really the impetus for us even connecting. So really enjoyed your knowledge and experience within economics. So maybe we can go over, touch on that a bit. Obviously, over the last 2002, 2022 has been a very interesting year. We have seen inflation getting out of control. We've seen the Fed and other central banks around the world increasing interest rates to battle. Inflation has been taking place and increasing interest rates so fast, which fastest, I believe, in history, 300 basis points in a matter of less than a year. So talk to us about what you saw happening in 2022. Give us a recap. Was there anything that shocked you? Was there anything that was surprising? Was there anything that was obvious? Give us a quick recap of 2022. Well, I think you kind of have to back up a little bit more. When the stimulus checks were coming out, people, they didn't understand what that was doing to the dollar. They just saw it as dollars. And so I'll kind of break it down the way I did for some of my classes. Specific moment in time, your currency, the money supply is worth $100. And that is split over 100 equal pieces of currency. If overnight, 100 more pieces of currency are created, and now you have 200 equal pieces of currency, now you're splitting that $100 that the money supply was worth over 200 pieces instead of 100 pieces. So that basically halves the value of each piece of currency. That was where inflation was born because there was nothing else it could do. I mean, your quantitative easing, your quantitative tightening, it's like having your foot on the gas pedal and the brake at the same time. So I think that's one of the reasons why as we continue to see these rate increases, we're not seeing this massive slowdown in the inflation rate because you're doing 
two things that counter each other at the same time. So I think that's one issue that we've got. I definitely do think we're in a slowdown. I think it's been sustained. I don't care how you change the definition. Every business I go to in my town has a help wanted sign. That doesn't scream lowest unemployment ever to me. (laughs) That screams we're still in a situation. If things were growing, I wouldn't have a hard time getting eggs at the store and they sure wouldn't be $7 a dozen. So I think there's a cooking of the books going on. I think there's a different narrative being told than what's actually going told. There's like five or six different ways to determine inflation. And you really have to be able to look at all six of those because they're all going to be off. They're all going to be biased a little bit. And if you're only looking at one, like if you're looking at CPI only, but you're also not taking into consideration like energy prices or food prices, or you're only picking and choosing out of it, then it's not giving you any kind of a realistic view of what's going on. So, and I don't know what you've heard about like the Phillips curve and stuff, but if the economy is growing, there is a relationship called the Phillips curve that is supposed to hold, which is inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation. As inflation goes up, unemployment goes down because in the short run, people don't see the dollar for what it is. They just see it as another dollar because they're looking at it in nominal terms and not in real terms tells me that dollar's worth 50 cents. Nominal terms says it's worth a dollar. So there's that disconnect there. And I think that it's important to realize that the Phillips curve isn't holding right now. And I'm not sure of all the reasons why it's not holding because there's so many things going on now that we simply don't have a historical backing for. In the late 70s, early 80s, we had stagflation. We had crazy inflation. We had Paul Volcker jacking up that rate full on percentage points. By 1981, it was 20%. I mean, it was outrageous. That was the federal funds rate. And it wasn't until 85 that we saw any level of single digits. And it wasn't until 86 that we were back in single digits. And we've been in single digits since 1986. So What's your prediction moving forward, do you think that... The oh my Fed, gosh, I have no idea. Do you think I the think... Fed will continue raising rates? Obviously, they've been doing it. They're, they've just maybe took their foot off the gas pedal just a bit. They're it's still on the gas pedal full on down, but just a bit because it went from 75 basis points to 50 basis points at their last meeting. Do you believe that they'll continue doing that? Do you think the interest rates will have an effect on inflation? Do you think the job market is still too strong? There's a lot of tech companies are huge layoffs. I believe Salesforce, 10,000 people they let off. It's huge layoffs. Other meta and other tech companies are also doing huge layoffs. What is your prediction? Is it going to be a repeat of history where what happened in, in the 80s with Paul Volcker? Or do you think the inflation will subside and what they've done here will take an effect? So I think that we almost have a level of insanity going on. Well, at what point do we realize that doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is in fact insanity? It hasn't worked yet. Why is it going to work next time or next time? Is it the economy correcting itself? Well, that's the only tool they have. That's the only tool the Fed has is to increase rates. No, they've got, there's other stuff. The FOMC can also go in there and adjust bonds and stuff too, but it's who's willing to do anything with bonds, right? And that's where they can, I guess, have you ever seen a red, was it Jekyll Island, I think? And it talks about the Fed as being like this outside agency. It's not really a part of the government. It's actually like this business. And I've not had the opportunity to read it yet, but it was really interesting to hear that because I thought the Fed was like part of the government. But the reason why the Fed can move the way they move is because monetary policy can be made like that. Fiscal policy takes a long time, but they both tend to cause overcorrections. So we can pretend like raising the rates is going to be what truly decreases inflation, but I think it's just going to be a regular economic correction that's going to fix it. There's business cycles. Business cycles are still going to happen. And when the government gets involved, it tends to over or undercorrect. And 
then we wind up in a position that's above, like it's beyond or it's still under where we need to be. And it can be just, it can just take a really long time to fix things. And that's one of the things that has me really concerned about what's going to happen in 2023. But regardless of where the interest rate goes, you're going to have to find deals that pencil. You're just going to have to use those higher interest rates. And whether that increases or decreases somebody's deal flow, I don't know. Yeah, we'll get into that. So let's make a connection between the economy and real estate, particularly multifamily. And let's start with 2022. Us in the space, we closed on one deal in early 2022. And then we worked on a deal in Arizona for a good five months. But every couple of weeks, we're re-underwriting the deal. The interest rates were going hyperbolic throughout the whole time from the time the deal came across our desk to the time the deal collapsed. It really took a long time. Yeah, unfortunately, everything fell apart because, of course, we went back for a retrade price reduction and didn't align with the seller. So yeah, so we're fiduciary to our yeah. investors. The deal still made money. The deal was still a good deal, but it just we didn't feel comfortable enough. We didn't have enough cushion there. So we went for a retrade price reduction, which we achieved some, but not to the number that we were looking at. So we've been really through it. They were planning to stay on the sideline. The deal was a great deal. That's why we even jumped on it. But talk to us about what you saw. Any horror stories, groups not purchasing rate caps in 2022, rate caps maturing, they have to repurchase at a higher amount. Is there any stories? Because I know you have your in this space. Is there any horror stories that you heard in 2022 or any deals falling apart or any stories about people losing their deposits? Talk to us about some good juicy stories from 2022. All right. So I actually, I was at an event yesterday and Erin Hudson was there and she was talking about how last year they did two deals and the year before that they did like 16 or 17 deals. And so she talked about just the slowdown and the cautionary practices that were taking place. Some of the things that we saw was deals, they weren't able to fund as easily because investors were holding onto their money. Investors wanted cash. And like, I didn't understand because I'm like, every day that you hold that cash, it loses more value. (laughs) You need to put it in something in a hard asset that's going to at least trend with the inflation. But I heard of people that had to get multi-million dollar gap loans to get their deal across the finish line. And those gap loans come with very high costs. And those high costs are ultimately going to show up in that bottom line for the property. And so I haven't heard a whole bunch about people with adjusting rate. We were lucky enough to get into a fixed rate bridge, which at the time we were like, oh, 5.99, this is so much. Now we're like, 5.99, heck yeah. <laughs> but when is that maturing? We've got two more years. Two more years. Okay. So you'll hopefully be over this. So now let's... For year for sure. Okay. Let's connect the economy and everything we just talked about with 2023 and our predictions. Obviously, we have our predictions here in-house. I have just written a newsletter about my prediction in 2023, both of what economy and real estate will be featured on our website and on LinkedIn shortly. But talk to us about your plans, your predictions, your plans as a general partner, your fiduciary to your investors and your partners, what is your plan for 2023, knowing the dysfunction that exists there with the government and their hand in in commerce? What is your prediction? Are you guys sitting on the sideline looking for opportunistic deals? If a deal comes across your desk, what are the check boxes it has to check for you to even be interested? Jason has to say it's a good deal. I don't actually do numbers. (laughs) So that's a Jason thing. Jason's your husband? Yes. Yes. He's our underwriter, but I kind of... Aside from the numbers, Angel, I'm talking about, are you looking for cash flow from day one? Are you looking for assumable loans? Are you looking for a deal that has value add? Assumable loans take forever. And we've kind of decided we're not going to chase agency probably ever again. We've been looking at bank debt, recourse debt. At this point, we're like, we just, with our first property, getting a loan product was so very difficult. 
And so we just decided that we're not going to go down that road anymore because time is money. It has a cost to us and has a cost to our investors. So one of the things that we're looking at, because I am very fearful of stagflation happening in 2023. And describe what stagflation is. It's the worst of both worlds. You've got basically this economic slowdown where the economy is grinding to a stop with inflation that's going crazy. So you've got like inflation and recession all slammed into one and people are having a hard time dealing because it's a very difficult kind of situation. And that's where I'm really looking into our properties and I'm looking at additional streams of income because the idea of continuing to bump rents across the board in that blanket fashion, it really kind of hurts my heart because not everybody can afford those kinds of blanket bumps. But if you can do things like a Wi-Fi package or you can do covered parking or you can do storage or you can do some kind of a laundry facility vending machine or you can maybe take on the vending machines in the property, If you can find some way to get additional income streams without having to do that blanket rent bump, yeah, there still will be some. But when you have those additional income streams, you allow the people who can afford it to purchase those kinds of items. So you're still providing income to the property, but you're not hurting your residents that can't afford those kinds of blanket bumps. All right. I wanted to ask Angel something. And in your opinion, are we in a recession right now? I think so. Going into a recession and furthermore, with your economics background. In your opinion, like what's your firm's acquisition strategy? Are you guys planning on waiting a couple quarters before you start buying? Do you feel like there's distressed asset opportunities right now? Or is there going to be more further into 2023? I don't think that there's going to be this huge bubble event that people think is going to happen. I just really don't. And I think part of that is because when you look back at the late 70s, early 80s, there was not the same kind of media involvement and connectivity that we have now. So when the Fed comes out and says, oh, we're predicting there's going to be a 0.5% raise in the interest rate, people begin adjusting for it as soon as they hear it. So when it happens, it's not the shock value. When Volcker did it, holy night. It was a shock value. It was a fixer. It did things immediately because people didn't expect it as much. Sure, some people did, but not everybody was as connected to the media on that event. But now we're so connected and we hear so much more than we did. I think that it really cuts down on any kind of short run effects that these kinds of changes would have because people start preparing for them as soon as they hear about them. Right, right. So there's no, oh, everybody stop buying right now. Wait until 3Q4 2023. And there's going to be all these incredible buying opportunities. You're just kind of watching things as you go. And Jason's penciling things out. And if it's a good deal, you're going to jump on it. Yeah. And he's checking things out. He's putting in interest rates of 8%, 9%, 10%. We're looking at vacancies of 20% because those are things that need to take into consideration because When I was teaching middle school, I was teaching at a very high poverty school. And one of the things I saw was that as as times got tough, you would have these intergenerational families moving in together. So it would be the kids, the grandparents, the great grandparents, maybe the cousins, but they would all move into one location to save money. And so there could be that consolidation of households again during all of this, because this is very similar, I think, parts of it into what happened in the early stages of the shutdowns with the pandemic. And so I think there's going to be this combination of households that are able to do that and able to live sort of comfortably and hopefully not get caught up in lease violations. But that's how they're going to share some of those costs. And so I think there will be higher levels of vacancy because of the households that are going to start combining. All right. What is your interest rate prediction? Do you think interest rates will come down in 2023? I don't know. I don't think they'll go over 10%. I'm talking like, I think if they do go over to Ava's prediction that there's going to be a lot of groups underwater, I think her prediction will definitely come through if the rates go up that high. I don't think Prime will go over 10. I mean, what's it at now? 7.5? How about cap rates? What's your prediction on cap rates? Do you think cap rates are going to start keep increasing? Are they going to stop? Are they going to decrease? What's your prediction for later in 2023? I don't actually know. I don't always look at cap rates because I feel like it's kind of a given. When you come into a market, 
you don't get to determine what it's going to be. And until you exit, you don't know what it's going to be. You've got estimations of what it's going to be, but like the going in cap rate is basically what's in your market. So I think that we're in a unique market because a lot of places are seeing rent drops and we're not seeing rent drops. Last question on this before we move to the next segment of our show is how about as far as inflation? Do you think inflation will start decreasing in 2023? It is decreasing a tiny bit already, but do you think it'll start coming down significantly in 2023? Is it really going down or are we being presented with numbers that are giving a different narrative? Because moving forward, what do you think moving forward? Do you think it will come down now that there's going to be job layoffs is having somewhat of an effect into the job market? I think it depends on how they're going to affect the real rate versus the nominal rate of the dollar. Because if we're truly where they say we are, then our goods are going to become more expensive in the world. And it's going to have a lot of pressure on us. We're not going to be able to export as much because they're already saying our dollar is strong compared to these other currencies. I don't feel like my dollar is strong. My grocery bill quadrupled. So the only time that it goes down is when the market needs to clear because they've had prices so high, nobody's buying it. So I'm constantly looking for those market clears. Man, I wish I could give you a really good like prediction, but I think there's just so many variables. Are you investor relations in your group? I am. So what do you say when an investor asks that question from you? Hey, Angel, <laughs> you want me to invest with you? My hard-earned money to come and give you $100,000, $150,000, I want to know what is your prediction where the rates are going to be this year? Is the inflation still going to be there? Should I invest with you? What should I do? Like, what would you say? Questions that Ava gets asked on a daily basis. I would say that if you invest in this asset, you invest in this property, your investment is going to ebb and flow with the inflation rate. You're not going to lose out one way or the other as long as you're invested in something that's going to continue continue to move up and down with the inflation rate. A tangible Um, asset that their rents basically follow inflation in a way. Yeah. And I mean, I can't say that you're not going to lose out, but the potential for a property going to zero is pretty low. And I would just say, I mean, as the dollar becomes less valuable and rents go up because they have to, because the dollar is less valuable, then your property value is going to go up because of the way it's figured from the cap rate. Right. So, I mean, that's just how it plays out. And so you want your dollar in something that's going to be increasing in value, even if it's only a nominal increase and not a real increase. A hedge. You want something that's direct hedge against inflation. And that's commercial real estate. Potentially. All right. Great. We really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, allowing us to put you under the gun. I'm not sure if you allowed us, but uh, you were definitely put under the gun. You have a choice. choice. All right. Let's move to the next segment of the show, which is more fun. Is more guns pointing at you. It's the rapid fire guns. Yeah, whatever. So 10 championship rounds to financial freedom. So whatever comes top of mind. Here's the first question, Angel. I'll just move this closer to you. So sound will be very firm, Ava. Thank you, August. All right, here we go. First question, Angel. Who was the most influential person in your life? Hi, my grandma. Any cool stories you can share? I can. So my grandmother was born in 1933, and she only made it through the eighth grade because she would have to go pick cotton with her family every year. This is paternal or maternal? Maternal. And so my grandmother was Hispanic, and her family was into migratory farming. And so she would leave the school year and go and help her family pick cotton, and she would come back and she'd be far behind. Only made it through eighth grade. And then she went and got her GED and she became a civilian librarian for the army. But prior to that, she met my grandfather and they got married after knowing each other for like two weeks or something. I don't know. They were together forever. The only thing that split them up was when she passed away. But knowing that she only had eighth grade and then got a GED and then she was a librarian for the army. And then my grandfather worked so hard for his C's and he went into the army and then he wound up getting an associate's degree and seeing them 
get into real estate, when I look at these other families and even my husband's family, his whole family was educated. Yeah, they got into real estate, but they were all educated. They all came from places where investing and doing things with your money was the norm. And I looked at my grandparents and it wasn't like that. And I just knew that my grandmother had fought so hard. And when her and my grandfather got married, there was actually a little bit of dissension there because my white grandpa married Hispanic woman. And so there was that level going on too. And there was just so many things that she overcame. And so that is was absolutely the biggest influence in my life. Amazing. It's a beautiful story, Angel. Okay, I'm excited to hear this one. What is the number one book you'd recommend? Let's see. It doesn't oh, that, have to be a real estate or economics book. It can be any book influential. Right. Well, here, hold on. I'll grab it. Just dropped everything off of my bookshelf. Oh, right here. Positive Intelligence. Okay. Okay. By? It is by Shirzad Chamain. I'm probably saying that incorrectly. Okay. Okay. We can see it. There you go. Okay. Great. Basically, what it talks about is it talks about like, what are the saboteurs in your brain? So everybody has the judge. We all look at what people are doing. And we're like, why are they doing it that way? But then there's these other saboteurs. And you take this test that's also in the book. And it helped me understand that I've got this super achiever piece of me. That doesn't mean I'm a type A. What that means is that I find my value and I see my value in how other people view what I am doing and in what I'm doing for others. So all of my value, all of my self-worth is external. Mm. And that's the saboteur in my head. And so I have to, when that is coming into my head, I have to say, no, I can't do another year as the PTO treasurer. No, I can't do another year as a scoutmaster. No, I can't do this because in my mind, my value comes from what I do and what I do for others. And so that was really an important thing that I learned from the book was that those saboteurs are not true. They're not real. And your value comes from within, not from outside. And so that is why it's my favorite book because it was a real game changer for me. Yeah, Ava is going to give it a read and give me a quick debrief on it. 100%. Over the weekend, possibly. 100%. Okay. All right, next question, Angel. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I actually wouldn't change anything. Is there some things that were reckless and stupid and things I shouldn't have done? Absolutely. But I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't gone through those things. And so even though they were reckless and stupid and I'm lucky I made it out to the other side, I still probably wouldn't change anything because I needed every muscle that I gained along the way to be where I am now. Nice. I like that. Okay, next question. What's the best investment you've ever made? Probably the first house we ever bought because we still have it. Zero dollars of our owner in it. (laughs) It has been infinite returns for, gosh, over a decade. Nice. Right on. Okay, now what's the worst investment you've ever made and what lessons did you learn from it? The worst investment I ever made was in a deal with a super big player that it was just a bad deal. And it wasn't so much that we lost money on it. It was that we didn't make anything on it. So what we lost was the opportunity cost of had we put that money into a deal that was performing. Right. So that we lost that way. We lost 85% of the investment because we didn't check this person out better. The deal penciled and this person looks amazing on social media. So, I mean, I would just say that you've really got to vet people out and having that experience is probably one of the reasons why I really focus on reconning someone. It's kind of fun, but it's become really important to me because at first I thought you don't recon people. When you recon people, it makes you look green. It makes you look inexperienced. But when you don't recon people, it makes you look foolish. And if you want to grow in this space, you have to recon people and vet them out and make sure you know what's going on before you get in the deal with somebody. I know exactly what syndicator Angel is talking about because we've had this conversation before. Right. And 
Angel and I get on a call sometime and we jointly vet people. If I have somebody that I'm looking into or she's somebody looking into, we kind of discuss it and reach out to our network and see who this person is because yeah. the multifamily, the syndication fraternity is very intimate yes, and right. stories come across right away. And he always walks out of the room. I'm like, you guys were sure on the phone for a long time. He's like, that girl is so so smart she knows everything about everything so it's funny so (laughs) all right here we go next question angel how much would you need in the bank to retire today what's your number two million two million that's it we're gonna we're gonna make that on a couple of deals together angel okay so you take that two million there we go into deals okay and that creates enough cash flow for you to live at about hundred thousand dollars a year right on tremendous tremendous i like that all right, smart woman. Okay, next question. Here we go. If you could have dinner with someone dead or alive, who would it be? I don't know. I'd really like to see my grandma again. It'd be really cool to show her where we've come, like how far we've come. Yeah. Or maybe Jason's dad, because I always looked up to him as well, because he got into real estate investing when Jason was younger. And he has like a degree in biology and then microbiology or mammology. I forget exactly. And then he does museum studies, but he was also very successful in investing. And that was all self-taught. And so I'd love to show him where we're at now, too, because when he passed away, we did get some of that inheritance. And I would love to show him what we've done with it. Nice. All right. Next question, Angel. If you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you be doing now? Teaching. Okay, nice. Yeah, you really enjoy teaching, hey? And you're good. You're Yeah, love it. Next question. My favorite one, book smarts or street smarts? Wow. I think that you have to have a combination. When I first met Jason, I would tell people that he was the smartest dumb person I knew because he had this PhD. And I was like, don't you understand what's going on here? This is what they're thinking. This is what they're saying. He's like, what? And over, we've been together like, gosh, I don't even know, 20 years. We've shared book smarts and street smarts with each other. And so we're a much more nimble, but I think there has to be a combination. I don't really think it can be all or nothing. And we're looking at the book smart piece of it now too. And especially when it comes to like formal education. And I don't know that we're going to push our girls into it. Jason and I both have advanced degrees and I still don't know that our girls don't have to go to college to get a career. If they want to go to college for the experience, that's fine. But you don't have to go there to get a career because you can do what we're doing and do plenty amazing because we're making more now than we ever made in our fields of study. Funny you say that because August and I, we never went to college. We actually both jumped. I went to college. Right into our careers. I went to college. I didn't finish a degree, but I've gone to college. I took a bunch of different courses and programs. (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, we're thinking if we could go back in talk, time. Talk about yourself, girl. We okay? could go back in time. Don't be bringing me into you people didn't go to college and stuff. I've gone to college. If we could go back in time, probably we would do that because you really learn how to learn, right? You learn how to retain information. You learn all these different things. So what's your opinion about that? So I could take that back to teaching piano. I never taught piano to a child younger than five because when you're learning piano, you need to be able to remember from piano lesson to piano lesson. If you don't understand, you have to remember what you did from this lesson this week to the next week. You can't learn because you can't scaffold upon what you're doing. So the learning to learn piece, you have to be able to scaffold upon what you're learning. And if you figure that out in junior high or high school, I would just say that college is for the experience, it's for the relationships. And if you come out with a degree, great. If you don't, that doesn't mean that you didn't gain any relationships while you were there. Right. Okay. Awesome. What? Why is book smarts or street smarts your favorite question, Ava? Because I love getting people's opinions. Probably because I never went to college, right? So the book smarts and being able to read all these books and some people can read a whole book in a couple of days, right? For me, it takes a lot longer than that. But 
that's kind of fun. And also a lot of times we have academics, highly educated people here on our show. And 95% of the answer, I would say 98% of answers has been street street smarts. smarts. And these are, this comes from people who are book smarts. Which is really incredible to me because again, if I could go back in time, I would have been like a dermatologist or something like that. Right. But that wasn't my, where I ended up. And like, if I was thinking about it, like all of the education in real estate that Jason and I have, he learned from books and podcasts. I learned it from interviewing people and just being around it. Right, right. And so that I guess that's kind of like formal education, but I believe a person can be well-read and well-educated without having to go through a formal educational process like K through 12 or college. You don't have to do that to be successful in your field yeah. unless it's something required. 100%. I think you answered the next question, but we'll go at it again. Ava? If you had a million dollars cash and you had to make one investment today, what would it be? So let me just do this. Ava went really bit too quick. If you had a million dollars cash, you can make one investment today. What would it be? Very particular question. Is there a length of investment? Does it have to be for a specific amount of time? No, no just it, today you had a million dollars, but you had to deploy it today. I mean, it's not that literal today, but if you have a million dollars liquid cash, you want to make an investment today, what would you invest it in? This is a common question people come up with. Hey, if I hit the lottery, if I had a million, and sometimes a lot of people do have a million dollars cash. What should they invest it into? What would you invest it into? I don't think it's the answer you want. I would probably actually, because it all has to be in one type of investment. Yeah, most of the times. Yeah, we, it's, yeah. I'd probably actually put it all into residential. Okay. Probably residential multi, because I would own those outright. And the cash flow from those, so long as it's all rented, would probably be greater than if I put it into a multifamily as far as the cash flow goes. Now on the turn, it'd be better to be a multifamily. So single family you would do? You buy a portfolio of single family homes, that kind of thing? Or a portfolio of residential multis, so two, three, fours. Oh, got it. Smaller multifamily buildings. That's what my father-in-law did. They were fully paid off. And we'll just say that my mother-in-law doesn't have to worry about what's going on financially. Yeah. And to be honest and be completely transparent, that's probably one of my top choices for a million dollars cash disposable if I was putting it somewhere. Amazing. This is awesome. Awesome, Really appreciate, Angel, your transparency, sharing all your wisdom and knowledge with us. Thanks for coming on. This was a long time coming and it's glad really, we got you on the show. Yeah. And just please, before you leave, tell everybody what's the best way that they can reach. You. So probably the fastest way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. I'm Angel Williams. We also have a Facebook community. It's the Academy Presents REI Rocks community. And there's like about 860 people in there. We're pretty active there as well. But on Facebook? All my stuff. That's on Facebook? Okay. I want to join okay, that. Very I'm not cool. sure if I'm part of it. But, Thanks, uh, Angel. This is such a great Absolutely. Very knowledgeable. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope this conversation enlightened you on how to win big in this highly profitable and risk adverse space. Get on your feet and embrace this world that offers so many opportunities just waiting for you out there. Continue your journey to becoming a savvy real estate expert by subscribing to the show at cpicapital.ca. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and share with your friends. See you on the next one.